0: There's more knowledge in Aboriginal communities than than people believe. It's just that we're not very good at listening to it. You're listening to the Wheeler Centre
1: Podcast. My name is Sophie Cunningham and I just want to say how delighted I was to be asked to chair this event about country, future fire and future farming. Um, Before I introduce the guests, which need no introduction, and yet I will still introduce you, um, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri Wurundjeri people and acknowledge their elders, past, present and future. And I would also like to acknowledge the Yuan people, as Bruce is is here. um, So... Bruce Pascoe is a Yuin, Bunurong and Tasmanian man born in the Melbourne suburb of Richmond. He's the author of the best-selling Dark Emu... Young Dark Emu, A True History-Loving Country, uh, A Guide to Sacred Australia and over 30 other books, including the short story collections Night Animals and Night Jar and various academic texts. Bill Gamage is a historian and emeritus professor of humanities research at, um, at ANU University. He wrote The Broken Years, um, and I think many of us will know him for The Biggest Estate on Earth, and um, he's a co-author of Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. And For Country is the third book in the First Knowledges series, uh, a series that offers an introduction to Indigenous knowledges in vital areas and various practices that are explored in in, in this series include architecture and design, botany, astronomy and this book fire farming agriculture it's a really it's an important series it's a really important book and i'm going to just really ask quite a few questions there's so much to cover it was really hard to work out really how to, how to focus cuz it's such a a complex uh, and well, it's not, it's not a challenging... It's not challenging information, but it's become challenging because people seem to be det- determined to rest in ignorance, which really leads me to my first question to both of you. And that is, what was in it for settler Australians, if that's the right term to use, to be so willfully ignorant about the land care management practices that Aboriginal Australians used? Both of you have... Um, written in this book and in other books about the fact that quite a few um, new arrivals, new arrivals did know what, what was happening and they saw what was happening. And they commented on it in diaries. So why was there such a kind of commitment, if you like, to ref- a refusal to acknowledge at a kind of at a government level um, or a sort of administrative level that the landscape was a human one?
2: Well, because they had to. If you're going to invade a country, uh, you have to um, behave as if the incumbents on that continent don't exist. Or if they exist, it's one of God's accidents. And plenty of people are uh, referred to Aboriginal people as God's accidents. You know, just a waste to be on a land as rich as this and... Um, uh, do nothing with it um, and that 's the myth in Australia Aboriginal people did nothing with the land and uh, we were talking ab- about many many things in the green room before about uh, Aboriginal achievement um, and and yet Australia knows so little about it and it 's deliberate. These are the colonial rules and those colonial rules still exist and they they keep on getting updated. This is not archaic political behaviour. It's current and pervasive political behaviour. And so if you invade a country and you're a Christian in particular, then you, you have to create your own myth. And that was what was done in Australia.
0: Yeah, if you look at um, Europeans invading other parts of the world since the Spanish started doing it or the Portuguese, uh, they're interested in the people, but even more than that, they're interested in what they can get out of them. And the, the Spanish in, in the Americas are a classic example of that, I think. Um, whereas what happens in Australia, they very quickly think they can't get anything out of these people. They, get, they don't farm, the, no hierarchies, no recognised chiefs, useful, useless. Whereas... In, in Australia, you've got all these exotic plants and animals that the world has never seen. And so people get deflected into uh, flora and fauna and those sorts of things. And if they are interested in Aborigines, it's part of the flora and fauna.
1: You mean they kind of lumped them in? and They saw them as as natural, as... as yeah, as, yeah, yeah. It, it Though it leads to one of the questions I was going to ask later on, but it does seem to naturally which is the relationship between colonialism and capitalism. So the fact that what um, settlers wanted to do when they arrived was use stuff, trees and those kind of things, that they'd kind of quite... And this is actually why I sometimes get bemused, because I hear exactly what you're saying, Bruce, but if, for example, you're a forester... You would have thought that they would have there would have been some understanding that trees had thrived better under regimes of fire. So there was a kind of, the the willfulness willfulness was um, at that at, at the cost of the products that they were trying to save. If they had managed to um, deal with issues of s- sustainability, they would have been more successful commercially.
2: Yeah. It was an attack on country. Mm. It was um, an attack to to demoralise the country uh, in the same way that the Russians are demoralising the Ukraine. And uh, Don Watson wrote that fabulous book um, called The Bush, um, where he talks about his own family. Um, This is in uh, South Gippsland. I remember as a boy being taken down there by my father to see the giant earthworms, which are, you know, about that round. They're an incredible thing, highly endangered now. Uh, because of the treatment of that country. But such an unusual um, piece of the world, South Gippsland, and yet when those um, Scottish Christians uh, came into uh, that country, uh, they decided that they would fell all the trees in a drive, so they would scarf all the trees, weaken the downhill side of all the trees... Fell the uppermost trees and drive them down onto the ones below, completely clear the whole uh, thing. And because it was such a, like pickup sticks, such a tangle, they then burnt it uh, because the timber was useless, it had been smashed. And then they were really surprised when, in that high rainfall zone, the hillside washed away and went into the rivers. And those rivers that had been navigable for hundreds of kilometres uh, suddenly uh, became ankle deep. It, it was just willful nonsense. Don writes about it beautifully. Yeah. It's his own family. And he talks about the silliness of the activity. And it's, I'm, I'm writing a book now, called, which I've modestly called The European Mind, um, talking about this attitude to the earth that... Once people got those big boats that could float and take many people, what was going through their minds? What they did in South America, the bill was referring to, is incredibly disgusting. Um, And yet those soldiers that were beheading babies were saying prayers at night for their own babies. Uh, The European mind is a very unusual organ
1: Maybe, so, um, Move to give people an idea of some of the, um, the content of the book and some of the material that the book covers, uh, Bill, I wanted you to talk to us just for a moment about fire and not fire, because you talk a l- lot about the fact that the answer is always... Well, about, you talked a lot about not fire, which I found really interesting in this book. So could you explain what you mean by not fire?
0: Yeah. N- no fire is... A deliberate decision not to burn or to time the burn so that there are times when a particular um, commune of vegetation is not being burned. The most obvious is uh, rainforest. A lot of people think mountain ash is a, is a, another example, of, but I think Aboriginal people maintain mountain ash by letting it burn every couple of centuries or so. But basically, it's a, a choice about what's best for the plants, what will promote the plants. Throughout most of Australia, that means fire, at least some of the time. Uh, but in parts, swamps, rainforest, and so on, no fire is the best way to treat those particular plants.
1: Okay. And Bruce, I wanted you to um, talk a little bit about what the ways in which you might crop in a wooded, la- wooded landscape or the kind of agricultural work that, that leaves the... Um, ..doesn't involve removing everything that's there before you...
2: um After the 2019 fires, mm. we were taught a number of lessons. Because the canopy was gone, our sunlight got in onto the forest floor and suddenly we, we were growing grass... These were the grasses that we had been establishing on our open paddocks but suddenly we could see them in the forest. So uh, our best stocks of uh, wallaby grass uh, were underneath the trees but as the, the canopy started to come back, those grasses diminished. But we, we have been illegally, and I hope there's no uh, foresters in the room... Um, We've been thinning that forest. We've been taking out the little trees, which is uh, diametrically opposed to what the forestry do. They take out the big trees and leave all the little flammable trees. We're taking out those little trees and selling them as timber illegally and um, um, allowing those grasses to grow beneath. And uh, we've been putting fire through our grassland, but also through our forest. And, you know, we've got um, young Ewan people um, who have been through the law and like the idea of starting those original... ..those initial fires using fire drills. So there's... We have a fire kit uh, made up of grass tree and uh, on. We start the fire that way and then we follow it along, Mm. you know, sometimes in thongs and shorts because we're not going to war. When I'm in the CFA, we dress as if we're going to war. Helmets, visors, boots that you can barely lift because you're going into a danger zone. We insist on lighting a fire that we can walk through. Mm. My granddaughter was there um, on Thursday following along. She's three years old. She was in no danger at all, and was quite happily uh, using a wand of um, stringy bark bark to add to the fire. And it went so slowly, we we took a, a video of a praying mantis walking away from the fire. <laughs> the praying mantis doesn't like to fly when it doesn't have to, because it becomes vulnerable to birds. It's a slow flyer, uh, so they walk away. And I, I just—it's a great metaphor.
1: Yeah, and
0: if you, if you look at the early accounts of Gippsland, what you see is the descriptions of open forest, 10 to twelve to the acre, big trees and a lot of grass, grass that would hide a pack of dogs underneath it sometimes.
2: So mm. you're reproducing what the old people did. Mm. mm. A horseman horsemen used to ride through it and they'd have grass above their saddle. The yeah. horses were having to lift their heads to see where they were going. Mm.
1: Can you talk to us about a particular... I mean, some of the... I'd actually like to know some, about some of the specific plants that you, you're sort of bringing back into... Um, ..possibly into commercial production, but certainly kind of
2: well, a- acquainting we've, we've, we've us all we use about seven or eight grasses. Uh, they, a lot of them grow together. So we, they're not monocultures by any means. There's grasses, which are tussock grasses, um, perennials... In amongst them, there's uh, glycines, little, um, uh, you know, nitrogen-rich plants, uh, but also orchids and uh, lilies. it's a complex harvest um, and it's labour-intensive, but what's wrong with employing people? Uh, Bill and I were talking about the way fire is managed these days and... These control burns, so-called control burns, are started by incendiaries because it's cheaper to send up a plane with a pilot and drop incendiaries than it is to send six blokes out to uh, light it naturally. And then when they want to put it out, they put poisonous foam on it. Mm. Uh, This is so bad for the environment. And yet um, we could have people, um, hopefully Aboriginal people, Uh, doing this firework. Um, But uh, some of the plants that we're harvesting there and uh, that we're we're growing in our gardens to get seed from, there's a lily there. I took it down to the local Chinese restaurant on Sunday and um, my granddaughter designed the little box and coloured it in. We gave it to the local restaurateur. She thought she was getting an Easter egg and inside it, I had two dozen of these uh, little tubers which are about twice as thick as your finger. They are delicious. Vanilla lily is the plant Mm. Um, and they are absolutely delicious. I have seen them growing in rock. These are Australian plants. They love this country and they don't care where they are, they're determined to grow. And you lift the rock and there are these beautiful hands of tubers. This is going to be a great vegetable for yeah. Australia. It's perennial, um, doesn't need any water, no fertiliser, no aside. This is what the Europeans failed to see. They saw it. They did see, because they were stealing women's coulomons, yeah. full of these vegetables, but preferred a carrot and a parsnip. Yeah. Yeah. And... Vanilla lily is twice as flavourful as a, a carrot. Yeah. And they need fire. Yeah. yeah, but
1: I wanted you to, feel, to maybe talk a bit about the way in which fire encourages biodiversity, the, the, the sort of tradi- um, traditional fire methods, because that's part of what Bruce is talking about is the amount of the range of plants that... and, and, and not having a monoculture.
0: Well, uh, it seems to me pretty clear that a- Australian plants over a very long period of time have got used to fire and and in fact, they need fire. And just by the way, that makes me wonder how much Aboriginal fire with its uh, more precise and careful timing has actually improved the quality, much as Europeans have improved their strains of wheat and so on. I wouldn't be surprised if the tubers that Bruce is talking Mm. about have actually been upgraded by selective uh, burning by Aboriginal people, and certainly that's the case with Murnong, Yam Daisy. It needs to be cultivated and cultivated uh, plants uh, grow much bigger and much juicier and so on. So if you think of uh, fire in that respect as a gardening tool, which first of all maintains and keeps plants alive, secondly distributes them, and then thirdly improves their quality from an Aboriginal point of view, both for the good of the plant, because it's as entitled to an, an opinion about these things as anything, but also for the good of the uh, people who eat it or nourish it, which is people and animals and so on.
1: How does fire distribute dis- distribute seeds or how does it distribute plants? Uh,
2: by, by the root but also by seed. We, we, yep. We're collecting seed now and um, growing... Uh, tube stock of these lilies so we can give them to other Aboriginal communities. But the interesting thing about it, um, Bill, is when we harvest that, because it's a perennial plant, we just use a normal garden fork and we lift the plant up like that and then feel in underneath and harvest the tubers, then Mm. press it back into the ground, stamp on it with your boot, that one, and... um, and next day when you come out, you'll be hard-pressed to work out which one you'd harvested because the plant doesn't have any setback. It's used to it. It's had 100,000 years of having treatment like that. And it, it's, it, they're fabulous plants. Mm. You know, people who start farming these things, as long as they don't do it in monocultures, um, they, they will find them so easy to work with so responsive to humans.
1: Mm. Um, and, but fi- fire also, um, it's not just uh, you know, it's biodiversity of, of um, flora, but of fauna, so anim- burning, am I right, that traditional um, burns also make sure that, that, that animal, well, you talked about the, the praying mantis, but that yeah. animals might be f- frightened and sort of herded, if you like, but they're not going to, they've got somewhere to go. They're not going to end up dying.
0: Yeah, well, a lot of plants and animals coexist, of course, but a basic premise of Aboriginal philosophy is that because a thing exists, it has a right to exist. That's the point of totems, to make sure that whatever is uh, continues. And that's why uh, rabbits and camels and so on have totems, because they're here. Now, that... uh, Ensuring that everything that exists has a place is a key objective of Aboriginal society. Where you get a clash, such as you're talking about, where an animal might overeat a plant or vice versa, then there are special areas where a particular species has priority. And there, in that place, Aboriginal people will make sure that whatever place that is will uh, be preeminent. That's why so often in Australia, you can uh, translate a name as the place, of, the place of crows in the case of Wagga, where I come from, or the Jew-livered from, from Narrandera, further, just up the road. They're places where those creatures and their associated plants and animals have priority. And that means that there's always somewhere, some refuge which, which protects every species. So there's no possibility mm-hmm. of an extinction,
1: and loss of um, some some animals is actually making soil much less arable too, isn't it? That is, is it bandicoots, bandicoots that kind of? Well,
2: yeah. oh, betongs, bilbies, mm-hmm. they yeah. all do it. Yeah. They kind of. The yeah. living shovel is the bandicoot, yeah, yeah. just aerating the, the ground all the time. We um, by uh, allowing our grasses to grow because we destocked the farm. Um, and i just allowed the grasses to grow. We got bandicoots back, uh, which are diggers, and they work with the mycorrhizal fungus to uh, promote plant health. But we got dunnarts. I'd never seen a dunnart until uh, two years after I got the farm and the grasses came back. The, those little dunnarts, they're about that big, but... They think they're boxes, and they <laughs> they jump like a little kangaroo. Mm-hmm. But we, we have to spread our grass out on tarpaulins to dry it. And the Dunnarts think they own it, uh, which they do. Um, but they will chase us, you know, and see big fellas been running away from this little creature. It, you know, what a joy for Australia to become more familiar with the Dunnart and the Bandicoot. Um, it... it I just think that there's so much to be gained from loving the loving the country yeah. as she is, not trying to change her, not trying to cut down her big trees, um, but embrace this place and um, embrace the history of this place, which means... And that is going to be hard to do if you can't embrace Aboriginal people yeah. as part of the social fabric.
1: You, you just mentioned big trees, which is... Um, a passion of mine, um, why, why do Australians uh, post-78, 88, hate big trees so much? Like, it's sort of, as you... Uh, yeah. Tell I, me, explain I, it to me, Bruce, oh, well, I don't I, understand. Look, I, I'm,
2: I, I'm always amazed at how careless people are of their country of how many things people will do to damage the country. You know, most of the rivers in the Otways, for instance, were navigable for many kilometres upstream, and yet within years of Europeans uh, practising their, their kind of forestry and farming, those, uh, the, those streams were silted up. What, what, a, what a loss for the country. Imagine being able to go up the Jalibran River... Um, or the Tarwan River for 100 kilometres. As a kid, I remember sailing up the Tambo, um, literally sailing up the Tambo. And now you, you're lucky. You can't, get, you can't get much past Johnsonville now whereas you used to be able to go 100 kilometres. Um, th- this is really... You know, t- to allow our foresters and our farmers to get away with this kind of vandalism is terrible. And I think the hatred of big trees... And I I wrote wrote an essay called Hating Trees about Australia's attitude to the forest. Um, It's part of colonial rules. You know, rule one, despise the incumbent people. Rule two, keep despising them. Rule three, make new rules... ensure they're and rule four, kill everything you can. Yeah, we're
0: we're back to uh, colonists as capitalists, aren't we? Uh, If a big tree was valuable, and cedar's probably the best example, it was the main uh, Mm. export for a while in in, uh, New South Wales, um, then people would go after it. But if, if a tree is not useful, then it's in the road. You've got to get rid of it. And so, um, to to make grass. So, what happens is basically if a tree is useful, it's going to go. If it's not useful, it's going to go.
1: Mine was at a a, a tree, uh, paddock tree conference a couple of years ago in Shepparton, and they were a lot of those um, beautiful old, they're often red gums, but trees you see in paddocks around Victoria. being removed because if you as farming methods change, you can't remotely drive a tractor if there's a tree in the middle of the paddock. So in fact was, the conference was full of farmers who wanted to keep their paddock trees. Yeah. They weren't great lovers of trees, but they, they did they knew that that it was better for their cattle. Because of mm. the heat, but um, as as the um, the bigger the corporations that buy the the paddocks, the more likely you are to lose the trees, and the the, uh, the amount. Um, so there are fines because it's not legal to just pull out all the trees, but they can afford to pay the fines. So it mm. there's no particular
2: mm. Mm.
1: punishment. So the problem's getting... I think that, that long wind, was a long-winded point I was trying to make, is that I, I fear that the problem's getting worse, not better.
2: Yeah, I think we have to change our mind about this country. We Australians um, have to uh, insist that our governments behave uh, properly and scientifically and in a, a capitalistic way. Um, there's nothing wrong with capitalism uh, as long as it isn't corrupted... Uh, Anything is good as long as it's not corrupted. Christianity was okay until it got corrupted. And when we're talking capitalism, we have to talk Christianity, uh, because the two do go together. Uh, So many popes um, prior to the Spanish uh, invasion of the Americas were writing papal bulls to allow for the destruction of peoples and the theft of their land and their goods. So you can't separate... Unfortunately, uh, you can't separate uh, Christianity from capitalism. We have to address both things. And there are enough good Christians around to make this happen. Um, The... um, uh, The equal opportunity for marriage uh, debate could not have succeeded without good Christians. It was good Christians who were insisting a decade ago that women should be able to uh, perform religious rites, And that led to an acceptance of uh, equal opportunity for marriage. Um, So these things go together. And we were just talking about ring trees before. Mm. Most of those ring trees are about women's business. Um, It doesn't mean men are excluded. Um, because sometimes you hear a lot of nonsense about men's business, women's business, when in fact it was family business, but had a a referral to women. And a lot of those ring trees, the circular trees, are that shaped for a reason, and um, women are involved. And I'm, you know, because this is a literary audience, 80% of the people here will be women. Um, That's a statistic. And um, so women can drive this. Women ought to drive this um, because it's your business. Um, and just because, you know, I'm guessing the majority of you are not a- Aboriginal women does not mean you don't have a role um, in this. And, you know, like you, Sophie, I'm really anxious about these big trees because after the fires, that's what the experts were doing. They were cutting down the biggest tree in the forest um, because, and writing K on it cave a killer. What a, what a way to talk about a tree. And, and what an attitude attitude to life. What an attitude to the world.
1: And also, as you were saying, Bill, the, the smaller trees are more flammable. So it, it makes you more likely to have out of control or random fires, as you call them in the book. If, if you lose all the big trees and you're left with smaller trees, it's harder to have slow burns or controlled fires. Is that right? Well,
0: what, are, what what I was saying was that if you have a, a a cool fire, slow burn with low flames, that works if there's not a scrub layer to lift the flames through the scrub layer into the small trees and up into the canopy where the, it might crown. So you've got to think of the the layers of plants and therefore the layers of fire. That, yep. That's what I meant by that. And great areas of um, forest country were the big trees and grass. And then in some areas, you'd have thick scrub, fallen timber, uh, brambles, goodness knows what. And that's because that's a habitat habitat too. Everything has a place, everything deserves a place. So you've got to have those highly flammable places and perhaps they caught a light when there's the occasional lightning fire. But what you did was isolate those areas. Well, I don't mean in small patches. There might be, you know, a few hundred uh, square kilometres even in some cases. But you isolate those areas so the fires don't spread into the country you've, you've made as grass
2: and, and big trees. And if people haven't read The Biggest Estate on Earth, um, I, I think you should. And if you can't read, just look at the pictures because... Um, That's what it, I did. It, <laughs> It, it's such a, such a revelation um, to look at those made landscapes, uh, landscapes made by Aboriginal people. And on the, the farm down at Mallacoota, that's exactly what we're trying to redo. We're trying to bring back those landscapes where there, there are grasslands with belts of trees but all constructed out of very cool fire. And literally, it's cool fire because they, that praying mantis can talk to you about how um, how manageable it was, how easy it was to get away. But in The Biggest Estate on Earth, you see, there's there, Bill uses all those um, colonial artists who I was taught at school uh, were trying to paint England. Uh, no, they weren't. They were trying to paint Australia. Australians just didn't want to know about it.
1: Mm. Well, now, there's lots of... Um the various um, methods you, you're talking about, and the kind of plants you're growing, and the work you've, you've both uh, sort of uh, written about, and the, um, the, the knowledge you have gleaned—this is First Nations knowledge. And Bruce, I wanted you—I wanted you both to talk because I know that um, Bill, you, you have things to say about it as well about intellectual copyright. So, what what is What are some of the dangers of um, uh, uh, people developing these techniques and putting a lot of work into it and then that sort of getting taken by corporations or Aboriginal people not being incorporated properly in the ways in which these um, various farming methods and types of foods are being um, exploited or sold?
2: Well, it comes back to capitalism and Christianity again. Um, how, How those two... Uh, Great engines work together. And this is Australia's biggest problem. is not um, the acceptance of our foods uh, that we're growing now. We've got an unlimited market for it. But what we can't guarantee is that we'll be allowed to be part of that market. Mm. And all all we want is a part of it. We don't want to deny uh, people the... um, the use of those plants, because most farmers, if they have a look around, will know that they've got kangaroo grass, will know they've got spear grass, will know that they've got lilies and murnal, unless they've spread superphosphate and unless they've had sheep. Those two things will obliterate them. Mm. Um, And overgrazing will eventually obliterate kangaroo grass, which is a great shame because its root mass is so big. This is a, a... Like all those perennial a tussock grasses. Their root mass is huge. You will never get erosion mm. if you have old stands of kangaroo grass. You will never get it, you can't get it because it, they, for one stalk of kangaroo grass, the root mass is like that. Mm. And the mycorrhizal fungi interacts with that, with the animals, and it's a complete complex system. But there's no doubt this is going to become an agriculture in this country. It already is, in small pockets. And there's no doubt that uh, Australians are going to be growing these things in their backyard. Why wouldn't you grow lily Lily, when um, it's better than a carrot? Um, The only reason you wouldn't do it is if your colonial mind was refusing you uh, acceptance of of an Aboriginal provenance. But... Yeah, getting, I, I, I... Sorry, I, uh, Bill, I was just going to say getting... The, the, the thing for Australia is ensuring that Aboriginal people are part of the society. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, th- I think the way things are, it's
0: highly probable that Aboriginal knowledge will be taken and simply exploited and Aboriginal people might or might not be thanked. Whitefellas are exploiters. I'll give you a a far off example in both senses. When you hear about people going to the moon, why do they say they want to go to the moon or want to go to uh, Mars or somewhere? It's to mine. It's because they know there are valuable mine resources there. Have you ever heard anyone say, well, let's go and understand what the environment is, how, how things interact before we touch it, before we do anything. Mm. I've never heard anyone say that because exploiters don't think like that. They think that we've got to get that and we've got to get hold of it before anybody else does. And I think that's the big risk for Aboriginal people. Uh, personally, I think Aboriginal people are, are more than generous with the information they give, I think they should be more protective of it until they themselves can convert it to use.
1: Bruce, are you doing any specific work in this area about trying to—I don't know—trademark the products, or what? I'm not quite sure what the legal, what legal steps you have to
2: take. Yeah. But Look, all of that stuff is pretty straightforward, um, and you know we're going through that, those hoops. Um, but one of the the difficulties is that. Sometimes you, um, uh, people are uh, attracted to Aboriginal organisations um, with a, a kind of a zeal um, and some of those people are sensational. Uh, you know, do it, just are selfless um, givers but some people want to be saviours and the saviour is a really dangerous animal. And, um, you know, the first time an Aboriginal person says to the saviour, um, look, actually, we don't want to do that, we want to do it this way, bang, relationship over, and becomes toxic. That person then becomes your worst enemy because they are undermining... Uh, all the Aboriginal principles. So it's a, it's a difficult pathway to follow, but it's not impossible because there are some excellent examples of really good relationships between non-Aboriginal people and Aboriginal people. And there's a, an excavation that I'm going to at the end of May in um, Queensland where a brilliant young archaeologists, everyone's younger than me, so they're all young, um, they're, they're looking at, a, at the old quarries that produced a lot of the grinding stones for Central Australia. And it, this system is massive. They're using the term Silk Road, Australia's Silk Road, because there was a trading mecca. All the songlines converge on this quarry, all these quarries, because there's more than one. Mm. And this is such a... You know, I just hope Australia gets excited. It was published in The Guardian... And a little bit in the age. Um, but the Guardian is becoming the newspaper that the age used to be. Um, and this potential is all there. This, this cooperation is latent in in the country. Mm. Um, but those old colonial rules are still corrupting minds, you know, that the white person, like Xavier Herbert riding right, Capricornia, has to come up with all the answers. Because the blackfellas honest and noble as they are, i have got no chance of coming up with an idea. Read Capricornia again. Um, have I got the right name? Carpinteria?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no. Capricornia? Capricornia. Capricornia. Yeah.
2: Alexis wrote
1: um, Carpentaria. 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 Yeah. yeah. So a question I've got for both of you is... Well, I'm not even sure that the question is, is, is an accurate question... But how difficult is it to retrieve knowledge that has been lost? So, detailed knowledge of country, because there are so many different types of country across such a large nation. Um, how is knowledge being rebuilt? Or is uh, there actually a lot of detailed law left in country if people are left alone to find it? I'm just curious about the process of rediscovering, because some communities have been uh, destroyed and... Wa- in, and others have not, and some have lost language and some have not, and those kind of the impact of this kind of really detailed information you provide us with this book, there's a huge amount of work in in capturing all this knowledge.
0: Yeah well there's there's, there's more knowledge in Aboriginal communities than than people believe that that's yeah. one thing. Mm. Uh, it's just that we're not very good at listening to it. Uh, the other thing is, In many places, you can see the result. Either you can see it on the ground or you can hear Aboriginal people talk about what this country should be like. That gives you a kind of end point, perhaps not the the, the far end point, but a, a step well on the way. And then it's a lot of hard work to try and work out the steps to reach that point. The best way to go about it is to ask Aboriginal people. There may be places where the information's lost, but far fewer places than people believe, right. and uh, Aboriginal people are far more likely, even if they don't know, to say, well, this is, this is the way to try and this is what's quite likely to." Happen. To have the I principles
1: that, are, that they can... I think people would be amazed
0: at how much yeah. uh, that would bring back.
2: Yeah, I, I, it, Australians are, see, um, are unaware of the, um, the health of Aboriginal cultural life in okay. southern Australia. Yep. Um, a lot of people like to believe it only happens up in Kakadu. Um, but in southern Australia, uh, cultural life is, is vivid. Um, and prospering uh, on the south coast uh, a community that was really knocked around by colonialism simply because of the richness of the land and the minerals there and the fishing um, but um, on the, just in one small group there are 170 Aboriginal men who uh, conduct a ceremonial life and there is um, not as many women, because women find it hard to do law camps these days, because often having children, we're trying to address that. We're, um, we're turning to some kind of communal uh, childcare program to try and uh, make that easier for women. But if you could hear the conversation on the farm, and it's not just our farm, you know, the. There are places where this is happening all up and down the south coast. I worked with Paul Gordon last week. He was telling me the same thing. And hearing young Aboriginal people uh, talking about a problem, you know, a problem with a plant, a problem with fire, Mm. a problem with threshing, and uh, it'll never leave my mind when they started talking about Currajong, one of the young men said, I think you can eat this plant. You know, and what he was saying was, In the back of his memory, he remembers his father talking about this and his grandfather. So we dug one up. Sure enough, Mm. the root was edible. Mm. And so that man then went back to his father and his father said, well, you better come back onto country. And they went back onto country. He came back with all the courage on law. The courage on law wasn't gone. It Mm. just required him... To ask,
1: to ask the right question.
2: Yeah, good.
1: That's a. That's very reassuring to hear. I want. To, we haven't got. Um. We, I am going to um ask. Leave some time for questions. So perhaps before we move to questions, I could ask you both. It's impossible for you to answer this briefly, but we have to give it a shot. What What should the future look like for a, a Bill? I'll ask you for. for for fire, and Bruce, I'll ask you for kind of agriculture.
0: I think uh, we need to understand our country better, and that means a lot of hard work and study, uh, guidance for Aboriginal people, but also our own independent uh, uh, observation, getting out and looking around. I think we uh, need to respect uh, Aboriginal communities and, in fact, recognise the power of Aboriginal communities. And uh, if this is not being too optimistic, uh, a time when uh, Aboriginal people uh, will be a genuine part of our community doing all sorts of things, leading in land management but also in big companies and directing them and so on and so on.
1: Bruce?
2: Yeah, I, I hope that I hope that we're um, growing those plants that the old people grew because they're Australian, they want to grow. Um, we don't have to spend a fortune on encouraging them to grow. It's a wonderful
1: phrase grow. they want to grow, I think. <laughs> well like,
2: one, one of the farmers at a conference recently said we spent a fortune on trying to get plants to grow that don't want to grow and then we spend another fortune on killing the plants that do want to grow. Uh, this, is, this is the colonial ambivalence that we have with this country. We're, we're killing the, the wrong things and trying to grow the equally wrong things. But it, it's about, uh, I think, I hope the future ha- is for Australia, that we fall in love with the country. I use that term a lot because I'm serious about it. I want us to really love our country. Um, and not see it as the problem. You know, stop talking about sharks and spiders and snakes. You know, start talking about the beauty of a grassland. Here's a job. Um, There was a white orchid that used to proliferate in (coughs) Melbourne. It it was the most dominant plant in Melbourne. Aboriginal people were growing it for the tuber uh, to eat it. And um, within a decade, that plant had been obliterated by sheep and later by superphosphate. <coughs> now there are a dozen plants in a factory yard in Footscray and if the, the factory was slightly more industrious, they would have been gone as well. But they're the 12 remaining plants uh, that exist in the wild. Now, this is such a beautiful plant, it's called... Um, Diuris fragrantissima because it's a perfume plant when colonialists first arrived in Australia they would gather armfuls of this orchid and give it to their uh, loved one because it's such a beautiful thing and lovers were exchanging these plants, this Aboriginal food plant we've almost got none of it left why don't we grow it again why don't we insist on growing this plant again mm. and using it for food? Because it was eaten in pre-colonial times, didn't reduce its numbers when it was not eaten. That's when its numbers, except by sheep, that, that's when it became a rare plant. So the whole biodiversity <coughs> that Captain Cook saw and banks and company was the biodiversity that Aboriginal people had created, uh, managed. And, you know, all that biodiversity has been challenged ever since that time, 230 years later. We can reverse it. I, Mother Earth, you know, after the fires, 2019, I can tell you how strong Mother Earth is, how badly she wants to live. And we can We can reverse these things, but first and foremost, we have to reverse our and mind. Mm-hmm. How we... How we look at country, how we behave in front of country. And mm. you know, I've just seen a sign here It, it says time's, time's
1: up. So, um, you're, um, I just like, would like to thank both the Wheeler Centre and, and Paperback Bookshop, but I really wanted to just say it was a real honour for me to speak to Bill and to Bruce, and, and I think for all of us in the audience. Thank you. Thank you. That was Sophie Cunningham in conversation with Bruce Pascoe and Bill Gamage on the Wheeler Centre podcast. This event took place on the 20th of April 2022 at the Wheeler Centre. You can find more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.